1: Something in our lives we're
2: fighting for. I'm staring blankly, frankly, I'm broken. My heart can't be mended, befriended or woken. An emptiness consumes me, in sorrow I'm soaked. My words can't be heard, as I'm strangled and choked. As tears stripe each cheek with a trail of sadness, my soul is stained black with the screams, with the madness. The pain of such tragedy, the waste of such life, the death of a husband. His children, his wife. The stairs were too many. My breaths were too few. My body exhausted, now mentally too. The silence of death, my smoke-stained hair, a hole in my soul that will never repair. The feeling of failure and pride that combine To leave me confused and abused in my mind. My lips wet with tears. I'm lost. There's no plan. Emotionally ruined. One broken man.
3: That was Ricky Nuttall from the London Fire Brigade reading his poem, The Firefighter. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, And this is episode two of our podcast, Things Worth Fighting For. I hope wherever you're listening to this, you're keeping safe and managing to stay sane. During this slightly surreal and difficult time, we are inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats.
5: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: I'm speaking to you from London, where I live, three months into lockdown. And the theme we're talking about on today's episode is the Grenfell Fire. The 14th of June will mark three years since the world woke up to those devastating images. A high-rise apartment building towering over London's skyline, engulfed in flames, the night 72 people lost their lives. The public inquiry in the aftermath of the fire reads like a case study in class discrimination. Not only in what it revealed about the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, but also of our society as a whole, it exposed a culture of neglect of complacency and a long chain of systemic negligence on behalf of the building management company responsible for carrying out the £10 million quote-unquote modernisation of the building. Those that were responsible for the refurbishment have continually passed on accountability and now, due to the pandemic, phase two of the inquiry has, like many things, ground to a halt, much to the frustration of the community, many of whom have either lost jobs or been on the front line fighting coronavirus in our NHS. Whilst they patiently wait for proceedings to resume, the silence is deafening and only deepens and prolongs the suffering of the communities around Latimer Road who lost friends, families and neighbours in the fire. As with Grenfell, something the coronavirus has revealed is that once again the government did not act quick enough, ignoring the calls and dragging their feet in response to the signs which were all around them. And just like with the fire, it's been communities coming together to support each other and show solidarity, which has been a guiding light through these unsettling times, proving that they can be there for each other, even when our government are nowhere to be seen. One of the ways that I chose to engage with the conversation around Grenfell was through my songwriting. We wrote a song called A Billion Heartbeats, and although we consciously avoided addressing the events of that night too directly in the lyrics, the message in that song is really about resilience how sometimes it can take the very worst human tragedies to bring out our humanity and our innate ability to empathise, to recognise the suffering of others. It's a song about learning how to become better neighbours and more active allies. You'll get a chance to hear the album version of that song at the end of this podcast. Ricky Nuttall is a firefighter with the London Fire Brigade. He had been asleep when he got the call and arrived on one of the 40 fire engines which battled with the fire that night. He entered the building three times. Speaking on the news afterwards, he said, you turn up expecting to see a fire in a window, or maybe two windows. You don't expect to see flames from the fourth to the 24th floor. I've been speaking back and forth with Ricky over the past couple of months. and wanna thank him for allowing us to use his powerful poem. Although he didn't originally intend for it to be published, I know it's been of much consolation in the community and has also touched many of us on the outside. Someone else who has helped shine a light in the aftermath of Grenfell is the guest I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For is an inspiring activist and a powerful voice in the field of social justice, Judy Bolton. Judy is a trained nurse who spent many years working in trauma and intensive care and is now a public speaker and director of justice for Grenfell the community-led campaign group which has fought for answers ever since that fateful night. I first met Judy in January this year when we invited her to talk at Speaker's Corner, our panel event at the YouTube Space in London. After filming, I spoke to Judy about my experiences as part of the volunteer groups on the day after the fire, and how the resilience I'd seen in the community had inspired the music we'd written as a band. I met with Judy again in February, before the world went into lockdown, so we had the great privilege of speaking face-to-face, unlike some of the other episodes in this series, which were recorded online or over the phone. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I'll meet you on the other side.
5: Hi, thank you for having me.
3: If I may jump back, my first question today is really about your connection to the area of Labber Grove and the community. Um, Has that been your home for many years?
5: Um. It has. I've lived in Grove now 16 years. I have a 14-year-old daughter. She's, you know, born, bred there. Um, And I actually love the community. It it really is that place that I call home. You know, I've lived around London, um, in West London, other places. But there's something very special and very unique to Labbrook Grove, which actually I haven't found anywhere else.
3: I mean, obviously, the carnival must be a huge part of that.
5: Yes, we we are carnival people. Yeah. And for two days out of the year, we open up our doors, our homes, our hearts to the rest of the world. Mm. And it's all the work and the planning that goes into carnival behind that. It's actually really quite an exciting time for families, for schools, for groups, for community, you know, it is that time of year that I actually look forward to out of all of them. <laughs> it really is kind of... So you're not one of the
3: people that leaves? Because I know some oh, people... never, well, yeah, <laughs> never, never, never. I mean, just just moving on to Grenfell, I mean, something that's often talked about is how the tragedy could have happened in Kensington, Chelsea, which is obviously one of the richest boroughs per square mm-hmm. capita in London. Um, But obviously something which characterises that borough is how such diverse communities live side by side, which Mm -hmm. was perhaps a politically correct way of saying the rich to poor divide is huge.
5: It's massive, actually. Between North Kensington and South Kensington, I believe that it was in 2017. Obviously, we had the fire. And just prior to that, we had our first Labour MP, Emma Dent Code, who took up office there. Mm. And she actually published a paper called The Most Unequal Borough in London. Mm. And some of the findings were actually really astounding. The fact that life expectancy from the north of the borough was, I believe, 72, 75, compared to the south of the borough, which is... 20 minutes by bus, if that. Mm. The life expectancy is in its 90s. So there is 20-year difference. That's massive. Mm. And you have to think, why would it be so? such a, a huge divide? Housing, education, social mobility, mm. people being able to get jobs.
3: Um, access to health services. Access to
5: health. Yeah. In fact, we have the highest number of food banks per head per capita than anywhere else in the UK. Mm. That's unforgivable. Mm. This is 2020 Britain. Mm. And we have children going to school hungry. Many of the parents are on zero hour contracts because you've also got to be home to pick up your children from school. So you're tied into this cycle that you cannot break out of. It's almost like it is engineered to keep you poor Mm. and yet when Grenfell happened the the council I believe it was 250 or 270 million in the black Mm. they had money
3: Mm.
5: and so why were corners cut on Grenfell if there was money there
3: just before we started recording you were telling me about your parents generation that came to to London as part of the Windrush generation. Yeah. Um, I mean, would you say that the community around Labrack Grove, where you grew up, is is predominantly West Indian? No. Or is it a real mix today? It's, it's
5: a complete mix um, and always has been. When I came to London in my very early 20s. Um, I had qualified as a nurse. I did my nurse training. The history in Labrack Grove was there were many of people who came from, I know they use this phrase, the Windrush generation. Mm. But actually this was post-war Caribbean. Many of the men and women had actually fought in the Second World War. The country needed rebuilding and it was put out to the Caribbean. We want you to
3: come. Boost the workforce.
5: Boost the workforce and also repair damages, build up the communities. And many of the people that came, you had to pay your fare and the fare, the, you know, your ticket, it was expensive. I think it was 25 pounds. So back then, that's a lot of money. And also they needed skilled workers. So 70 years ago, it was now 71. It was the start of the NHS. My mum being one of those nurses that came to do her nurse training and Actually, at that time, there was a divide because nurses were um, RGNs, registered general nurses. When the Caribbean nurses came, they decided to give them a lesser qualification called SEN, you were a state enrolled nurse, even though you had the same training. Mm. So again, it was that the divisions of them and us... Mm. There was that rise in racial tensions. Absolutely, there was. Which culminated in the tragic murder of Kelso Cochrane in the 1950s. And the Caribbean community decided, you know, we need to... How do we defuse this? How do we bring the communities together? And that's how the Night Hill Carnival started. They said, this is what we need to do. So it was, you know, when you look back in archive pictures, there are people dressed in their Sunday best with their steel pans and the cowbell and guitar. It was actually first held um, in a town hall. And then it came onto the streets after that. So, and look at what it is now. Well, yeah,
3: so the, the, the sound system culture that it's grown into oh. has happened over time but it's but it's interesting because when you go there is still as you said the 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 older steel pan music is still there
5: oh absolutely yeah. and actually that is the grassroots
3: of carnival it is a celebration of britishness because i feel like that is what britishness today looks like It it, it is a coming together of different communities mm-hmm. you know i think that's the city that we feel proud to call home
5: yeah it is and also that everybody's welcome that's the thing everybody it's inclusive is welcome yeah definitely it's making sure though so that these same at the moment where we hear in government about the rise in racial hatred hate to speak um prejudice that type of thing that we actually keep an honest narrative of everyday people like myself who are saying actually No, I I know my neighbours, and they have different faces to me, but actually, we're family. I'll give you a story. When I was growing up in Harlow, my parents, my father came from Jamaica, my mother was from Barbados, and when we were very young, my dad had decided to buy land back in Jamaica, so that when my brothers and sisters and I had all grown up, had a good education, standing on our own two feet, he and my mother were going to go back, so, as part of that plan, they decided that they would buy the house. And this was before Thatcher and her right to buy. Um, this was planning for their future. And um, on a Friday, you know, many people of my generation will remember that the rent mound used to come around and you'd pay your rent, sign the book. And our next door neighbors, Ethel and Harry, <laughs> mum was out in the garden, she was pegging out the washing. And Ethel said, oh, Doris, you know, I noticed that the rent man hasn't been coming knocking on your door. What's going on? You've got money problems and everything. I was only six at the time, and my mum was so cool. She sat there, she said, no, 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 no. We don't pay no rent. But right. well, Ethel, the language was blue. You lot, you you come over here and this and that, you don't. And my mum, she finished putting the last sheet up, and she looked at her, she said, no, we pay a mortgage. And walked back in the house. This woman was apoplectic. <laughs> apoplectic. However, what happened after that, because we lived on an end terrace, maybe it was about a week or so later, we got up for school in the morning and somebody had got a stepladder and with black gloss paint from the top to the bottom, the whole side of our house was covered in slogans like monkey house, niggers live here, coons go home. And it wasn't until I went to school that I knew that I was black. And I remember my dad ushered us on, didn't want us to read it. You know, my mum was absolutely mortified because actually we weren't the first black family in the street to buy property. We were the first family ever to buy a property. And our neighbours had gone to the council to petition against us, and there was a family. It's a guy called Doug and his son. They were painters, decorators, lived opposite, and because my dad refused to take it down, absolutely refused, he said, "I didn't put it up there, so it will remain." So it became an embarrassment to the street, and it was Doug and his son who actually washed down the paint and actually painted over the side of the house. And he said to my dad. I actually want you to know that not all of us here think like that or believe like that and that really sticks with me before my mum passed i spoke to her about it and she's like god judy you remember that and i said yes because daddy made a stand and he knew that we his children had to grow up in a country that was hostile towards us and how do we navigate that
3: So on the morning of on the morning after the fire, obviously the world woke up to those devastating images. Yeah. If if you go back to that time, where where were you when when you first heard the news or, or you saw the fire? Um, it was fitful sleep. I got up at
5: three and my cousin had sent me a message saying that she'd seen on the news that there was a fire in West London. My family know where I, I live. So I saw my phone. So I switched on the TV and I remember seeing these like breaking news, breaking news, and it just wasn't registering. I was thinking, what's going on? So I came out onto my balcony and the sky was red. Oh my God. And you can smell this acrid, I, I can't even describe it, smoke. I came out onto the front door so I could actually try and get a better look. And you can hear fire engines, sirens, sirens, sirens. I knew people that were in the tower. And by the morning, you could see the community had pulled together. There was no help from the TMO or RBKC. There was a man going down Bowlby Road. Because people had put a call out to because people were displaced. You could see it on the TV. Covered in soot, smoke, left the homes with just what was what they were wearing, their dressing gowns, nothing on their feet. That was it. And they had said, you know, we need bedding, we need this, we need that. And this man carried his mattress on his back to take down to the Latimer Christian Center. People carried food. They carried. They just said, what needs to be done? And every job body just pulled and mucked in, out of chaos. I mean, the emergency services were still there. That building burned for 48 hours. And on the ground were people traumatised, displaced, emergency services, people looking for loved ones. So people had to go to all the different hospitals to try and find out where their loved ones were. It was chaotic, but I... You
3: personally lost three people in the fire. I did. Yeah.
5: And I think that's one of the reasons why I am part of Justice for Grenfell, Mm. because I want to know why. There has to be some answers, but there also has to be a legacy that this never happens again. Mm. And the more you look for the answers, the more questions you have.
3: Where did you find support for your grief at that time? At the time, I
5: can't say it was grief. Mm. It was utter disbelief and shock. It was, you, you couldn't take it in. You, you really couldn't. And so we, as a traumatized community, were supporting each other. Mm. That's where the support came from. And we were calling for help. Mm -hmm. What do we do? How do we mobilize this? How are people going to feel safe? I mean, they found people sleeping in the local playgrounds, the parks. Mm -hmm. You know, the the whole area was littered with ash and these big lumps of molten, well, the cladding, Mm -hmm. everywhere. We were breathing this all in. It just wasn't a consideration.
3: I mean, 72 people are recorded as having died that night and over 200 people lost their homes. How many of those people have been successfully rehoused?
5: Theresa May had made a statement that everybody will be rehoused within three weeks. Two years and eight months on, we now have, I believe, it's eight people in temporary accommodation. And there was one other person who was still in the hotel, but that was because of uh, certain needs that they had. So it took them two and a half years mm. to actually house people, which is unforgivable mm. and inexcusable. As I said at the time, Emma Dent Code had gone to the council to find out the availability of vacant housing in the borough and I believe that there were over a thousand council houses vacant. But you see, we have this new, what they call <coughs> regeneration, gentrification mm. is the word, where there is the council housing isn't being built and it is being sold off to property developers. And some of these properties were earmarked for them. Whereas actually this should have taken a priority.
3: I mean, you're talking about the way that the community came together. The morning after the fire, people's humanity came out and actually people came together and yes. were so welcomed by the community and people found that comfort and support that they needed and total strangers.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: It's a rare glimpse when you get to see something like that, I think.
5: It is. I'm so proud, so proud to be part of this mm-hmm. community and actually of everything that I saw, and even what you yourself described, I wouldn't expect anything less from North Kensington people.
3: Well, I mean, the first time, I suppose, a lot of people found out about Justice for Grenfell and the work that you are doing was the three billboards. Yes. That that passed by the Houses of Parliament. And obviously that was an incredible, um, it got an incredible amount of exposure in the media. The billboards said... 72 dead, still no arrests, how come? Mm -hmm. I mean, it sent a hugely powerful reminder of the loss of life to those that saw it. But sitting here two years later, do you think that question's been answered?
5: No, no. We've just had the second phase of the inquiry start. In the first phase, it was about finding out what happened on that night. And actually the London Fire Brigade were under a lot of scrutiny. Mm. There were a lot of questions that needed to be answered. Things like the stay put policy.
3: Which isn't normally a, a London Fire Brigade policy, it I isn't. understand.
5: No, that's correct. And also what happened on the chain of command that night. And also, you know, there were questions about how the government had um, the deregulation of fire safety. Mm. You know, your fire officer was a fireman mm. who came to your place of work or schools or You know, before that, when Boris was mayor, he had cut 10 fire stations in the capital. You know, all of those things compounded what happened that night. Mm. Now, with the phase two, this is bringing into question the companies like Arconics, Celotex, Studio E, to give account as Mm. to What led up to that night? And also RBKC, Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea, and the TMO. Um, I was at the first, I was at the opening um, on the Monday and they were giving their statements. And this is, it's purely statements at this point. Came in on the Wednesday. Was
3: this phase one, sorry, or phase two? Sorry, this is now phase
5: two. There were different companies that were giving their statement. And it became very apparent that each company was saying it wasn't me it was them and they all started throwing each other under the bus mm-hmm. and you could see this pattern emerging and the the information that we were hearing even down mm-hmm. to the talks that RBKC had had with Arconics and Celotex prior to that about cost cutting that that was on the table Mm -hmm. and how do we save the money and so come by Wednesday Martin Morbick who is the judge presiding over this said you know it's with deepest regret that these companies have all got together got their lawyers and solicitors and said that they don't want to give their statements for fear of It's incriminating them. So any statement that they give, it then cannot be used against them for criminal prosecution.
3: Mm. And has that led the inquiry to a standstill?
5: Completely at a standstill Mm. now. Um, We believe that it would have started back again today. It's not. It's been put off now until March. There is nothing definite to say that it will start at that point. But it really was a punch in the guts.
3: I mean, you've talked about how in the refurb, companies upon companies were involved from Mm -hmm. the building management firm to the designers, to the architects, to the manufacturers, to the fitters of the Celotex. I mean... It almost seems, you know, you've talked about how the buck has been passed from company to company, but it almost seems like a recipe for disaster in terms of the negligence is spread across all those parties involved.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. How dare you come in and say, it wasn't me, it was them.
3: Something else I've heard repeatedly in interviews with the firefighters themselves is how even the contracts for the safety inspections and the compliance with the fire regs were sold off to the private sector as yes. well. I mean again with all these multiple links in the chains in terms of the refurb of the building, it 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 just seems so apparent that that is where the problem is. It's it's you know once upon a time it was part I suppose a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of this work was part of the public sector so it was part of the management of the building. Yeah. But this, this this modern way of, of farming things out to private companies is just a recipe for disaster.
5: It is. And Grenfell is the greatest example of that. Mm-hmm. And so, again, there must be a legacy that is left that brings about change in housing regulation, in fire safety, in building mm-hmm. regulations. All of these things, because... So that this never happens again.
3: The first time I met you, you gave me my green heart pin, which I
5: I'm very pleased to see you wear, which I
3: wear on my collar um, proudly, and you've got yours as well. I mean, for our listeners to describe it, it's it's the green Grenfell heart with a star representing each of the 72 people that that were lost. I was going to ask you about about where the where the symbol of the heart came from, because obviously it's become a true national symbol of remembrance. You know, it's it's synonymous with, well, it with was, the skyline of our city now.
5: It is. The green came from Faisal from Grenfell Speaks. He does a lot of media filming. He's archived a lot of what happened in the beginning. And he actually funded the hearts. And then there was a group of schoolchildren who wanted to raise money for the Grenfell charity. And they had a green for Grenfell Day. But actually inside the building itself, the walls were green. So the link all mm. comes together mm. there. Um, and
3: I understand that the, the Latimer Road is going to be renamed Grenfell. Is that, is that true? Yes. The, the train it's, station, it's sorry, the tube um, station.
5: The tube station that they had, um, I don't know how far along in its planning and, and everything else, but that certainly was a suggestion for it to be renamed Grenfell Station, it was Latimer Road Tube. For me, it actually brings a lot of sadness in that for the days after, actually for weeks and possibly months, because this was in the summer, the Metropolitan Line Tube goes past there. Every time the trains went past, the ashes and the dust from the tower blew up in the air. So every day we were being covered with the ashes of our loved ones.
3: I mean, how do you feel the victims of the Grandfather Fire should be commemorating? What would be a fitting tribute? And what do you think should happen to the tower?
5: Oh, I think that that land cannot be built on again. I think one thing that isn't very widely known is that there were many people who lost their loved ones, but there were no remains because of the intensity of the fire. But it was through police forensics and things that we were able, and also through phone calls as well, to track the steps of each individual that night, so that they could actually confirm that these were the people that were lost. And so, for many, that's their resting place. You know, we had many funerals within the community, and there were many who actually had empty coffins. So to build on that would actually be a disrespect too. There is um, a committee together, I believe, of bereaved and survivors who will discuss what needs to be done, whether it's a commemorative garden, but something that will actually honour the memory of those. And it is that, I think I go back to the legacy of Grenfell, that if, when we look back in history, that this atrocity that happened changed the way we view the worth of people's lives, the way that we build, as we said, safety regulations, housing regulations, communities, health, all of those things, that in itself will honour those who passed, who lost their lives, to negligence, social indifference, belligerence, greed, and to make sure that it never happens again. Mm-hmm. You know, as you said with our billboards, we said, you know, 72 dead, no arrests made. How come? Two years and eight months on. How come?
3: Still asking the same question. I mean, you've shared so much of your story today and also the incredible work that you do with Justice for Grenfell. I've got a question which I'm going to ask you, which I ask each of our guests, which is what are the three things that you personally believe are worth fighting for?
5: Oh, what are the three things that are worth fighting for? Truth. I I cannot abide a lie. A lie can hang a man. A lie can kill a man. A lie robs you of your own identity. So if there's one thing I'd fight for would be truth. Mm -hmm. Two, and this is from my dad actually is the right for every man to be a man or woman do you know what daddy said to me once judy nothing on this earth can hold you back he said not being black not being a woman not your education how much money you have in your bank none of these things he said if you find that you are holding back or being held back you need to look at yourself. The equality is that you respect my need to be me as I respect your need to be you. As long as within that, you are not disrespectful to others. So what have I got so far? Truth, equality. Yes. The third thing that I would fight for, my daughter. Mm. Every. Click of the clock of the day.
3: I was going to say, I think family feels like something that's so important to you.
5: Yeah, if you're my blood, I will fight for you. Mm. I will bleed for you. I will claw. I will scratch. I will scream for you. Yeah. Are my three?
3: Well, I'm sure lots of people feel exactly <laughs> the same way about you.
5: Mm. I'm very lucky. I'm a very lucky girl. But I think it's you get out as as much of it as you put in. Mm. And and I I get a lot back. I really
3: do. Judy, I know our time is coming to an end, so I just want to say thank you so much for giving so much of yourself and your story. I know our fans and listeners will have found this conversation so informative. really, And will continue to be inspired by your incredible work with Justice for Grenfell. And it means so much to have these conversations and keep Grenfell in the public conversation, so... Thank you so much.
5: Yeah, no, thank you. It's amazing. And, you know, for all of your listeners out there, please follow us, justiceforgrenfell.org. And it's justice number four Grenfell. So we have our website. You'll find us on Twitter at Original J4G, Mm. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yeah, we will absolutely, it is the support from those out there that actually keep us going and keep us finding, fighting. So that's amazing. So, and the
3: walk is on is ah, The walk
5: month. is on the 14th of every month. It, it normally starts from the Notting Hill Methodist Church, which is on Lancaster Road, and that is in Labrock Grove, W10. It will start from 6.30 in the evening. That's when people gather together to walk in silence from 7 o'clock. And we walk through to the community, round to the tower. And that's in love, our remembrance. And absolutely, again, we do really invite people from everywhere, you know, to come and join us. We, we really would welcome the support as we continue forward. That's fantastic. Lane, Thank you so amazing. much.
3: Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode two of Things Worth Fighting For and also to both Ricky and Judy for giving their time and sharing their powerful stories. If you wish to pay tribute on the third anniversary of the Fire, there'll be an online Remembrance event on the 14th of June at 6pm on the Justice for Grenfell YouTube page. And instead of the monthly Silent Walk of Remembrance, there'll also be a broadcast on Grenfell United's Instagram that afternoon, featuring talks with the community and guest speakers. Take a look in the show notes for links and more info. We'll be back very soon with another episode, so stay tuned. And don't forget to subscribe and give us a little rating if you enjoyed the show. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. Cheers, Matt. And thank you to Courtney Aisha Mortimer at Urock for all her help and coordination. And now to play you out, we're going to listen to the title track from our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. See you next time.
1: Why does it take a tragedy to make our true colors come out?